Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Israel and Turkey announced last week that they were restoring full diplomatic ties and that once again they would host each other's ambassadors for the first time in four years. Here to explain this welcome development and why it's happening now is Dr. Galia Lindenstrauss, a senior research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies specializing in Turkish foreign policy. Coming up later on the show, we'll be talking to Avi Sharf and Omer Ben-Jacob from the new Haaretz Security, Cyber and Aviation Desk to talk about the ongoing use and abuse of Pegasus spyware around the globe, about cyber interference in the Israeli elections, and a fake blog supposedly written by the editor-chief of Haaretz. But first, Turkey. Dr. Galia Lindenstrauss, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Happy to be here. The announcement last week of the restoration of full diplomatic ties didn't come out of the blue. We kind of saw the wind-up to it in March. Um, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, got the royal treatment and a big state visit to uh, Turkey by uh, President Erdogan, the man who's dominated the country's political scene for the past two decades. After that, Turkey's foreign minister came here to Israel. Then Foreign Minister Lapid traveled to Ankara after the two countries worked very closely together to quell this big terrorist threat against Israeli tourists in Istanbul. One can't help noticing that this warming of relations is happening ahead of elections in both countries. We're looking at an election year in both places, in Israel in November and Turkey in June 2023. Do you see these electoral considerations as playing a role in the sort of catalyst for this kind of normalization? Um, definitely, I think, from the Turkish perspective, they were using the opportunity before elections in Israel. They don't know what will happen after the elections, what will be the form of this n- the new government after the November election. This government was actually quite comfortable for them because it was a coalition government. There were parties that were more open to the Turkish uh, side. And uh, definitely from this is from the Israeli side. With regard to, uh, to what will happen in the June elections in Turkey, this is still an open question. This is something I think is a sor- source of concern. Uh, because we know previously, if we compare to the past, that when there were elections in Turkey, this also had a negative effect on Turkish-Israeli relations. Erdogan, when he's looking at elections or facing elections, he really hasn't had a problem in the past, but he's not in a good situation now. He has to balance the economic advantages of warming relations with Israel, which I guess helps the relationship with the United States as well, versus being seen as the Islamist champion of the Palestinian cause and therefore having a more difficult relationship with Israel. Yeah, we know that the Palestinian cause is very popular across the Turkish public. It's not just Erdogan supporters. It's vast among the Turkish public. Uh, So in a sense, it's not a popular move. He still has time to repair ahead of the June uh, 2023 election. Again, going back to where I'm a little bit concerned. Uh, In terms of his state in the public polls, yes, he's in bad state. I mean, other candidates seem to be more popular than him. He's in the worst state uh, in terms of public support uh, compared to the 20 years he's been in power. Uh, Definitely the economic situation is the thing that is in most concern to the Turkish public. Uh, We see the depreciation of the Turkish lira. Uh, Basically, the Turkish public is losing the value of the lira. Uh, We see inflation very high. We're seeing uh, official numbers are talking about 80% inflation, but unofficial numbers are talking about 150% inflation. That means we're in a hyperinflation situation. When you have inflation, you have to raise the interest rates. He's not doing that. He's objecting to that, both because of religious issues, but also because he has said he would not raise uh, the interest rates. And uh, when you don't use the right uh, remedy, 
then of course the situation only gets worse. Uh, so in terms of the economic situation, he's in a bad place and he'll have to do something in foreign policy. And this normalization with Israel, which is part of other initiatives he has in foreign policies, are meant to divert the attention of the public from the economic issue to foreign policy. More diverting attention, less that he thinks that warming relations with Israel will have direct economic benefits for Turkey? Uh, in terms of already, Israel and Turkey are very important trade partners. Uh, for Israel, Turkey is among the five uh, biggest trade partners. Uh, for Turkey, Israel is among the uh, ten biggest export markets. Uh, so there's a question where you can uh, raise the trade between the two countries. Uh, but definitely uh, this normalization with Israel is part of a bigger normalization trend in the region, also with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates. They are richer. They have more money to invest in Turkey. And you're right, uh, as you mentioned in the in the, one of the, your opening remarks, in respect that uh, if you show moderation in foreign policy, that also attracts uh, investors. And that's a good thing for Turkey. So the countries pulled each other's ambassadors uh, in the wake of the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. That's what happened, right? Turkey uh, withdrew its ambassador from Israel, and then Israel withdrew their ambassador from Ankara. When you look back, we this normalization attempt is the second normalization attempt in Turkish-Israeli relations. Uh, the first one was in 2016 when we signed a normalization agreement, which was meant to put the flotilla affair behind uh, the two countries. The Mavi Mamara affair, yeah. yeah. And this held for less than two years in 2016. 2018, in May 2018, the U.S. decides to move its embassy from T- Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, something that raises a lot of anger among the Muslim world, and especially in Turkey. And also there are the protests in Gaza, which there are uh, several casualties. And Turkey decides to withdraw its ambassador. That's a very normal diplomatic procedure, but it also tells the Israeli ambassadors to go back home. Now, I think Turkey didn't want to downgrade their relations at the time. It was it was actually trying to minimize the crisis, but it told the Israeli ambassador to go back home. And of course, Israel didn't accept that well. And then the consul generals were also told to leave. So for four years, we've had didn't have high diplomatic representation because of this crisis in 2018. Um, the, the, this issue of the embassy and the Gaza was the immediate uh, reason, but we have to remember that Turkey after 2016, July 2016, is a country in a revolutionary mode because of the, all the effects of the failed coup in, in Turkey. And I think that also had a negative uh, influence on the normalization between Israel and Turkey at the time. I mean, just as an average Israeli, we watch the ups and downs of Erdogan's behavior regarding Israel, and it doesn't really seem as if there's much rhyme or reason uh, to the times when we're in diplomatic crisis and he's saying terrible things about Israel and when he's, you know, making these charm offensives. Do you see a pattern to his behavior, to what what drives him to draw closer to Israel and what drives him to push them away? Yes, I, th- I think when uh, Turkey approaches Israel, it's uh, usually when Erdogan is somehow in a point of weakness. Uh, if we look back to the 2016 uh, normalization attempt, the first normalization attempt, the background of that was when uh, Turkey shot down a Russian jet and Russia re- reacted very harshly against this uh, Turkish action. And also today, we talked already about the economic crisis in Turkey, which is uh, bringing it to really a difficult situation, but it's all, it was also isolated regionally. Uh, Turkey 2018-2020 had very aggressive foreign policy, which, which alienated everyone. And basically, you had an informal axis formed against Turkey from Greece in the West through Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, UAE, and even India. All these countries basically shared uh, an interest to weaken the Turkish side. Uh, Turkey had to react against this unofficial axis, and it basically tried to do all these uh, overtures towards different parts of this axis in order to weaken it. 
Uh, so we saw success with the Turkish UAE normalization, later with Israel, with the visit of Herzog in March. Uh, and there's also overtures towards Egypt. And even last week, we had we saw overtures towards Syria, which is really a U-turn in Turkish foreign policy. Yeah, can you give us the regional picture, how this uh, new renewal of normalization affects the uh, Israel-Turkey-Iran axis and uh, what the influence of the Abraham Accords played in Turkey's decision to warm up to Israel at this time? Definitely the Abraham Accords had a very influential role in changing Turkish foreign policy. Um, Basically, they saw Israel forming this close relationship with the UAE, and they were out of the picture. Uh, This was very problematic for them. So now, even though at at the time Turkey objected to the Abraham Accords, it said to the UAE, we're going to pull back our ambassador if you go ahead with Israel. Uh, Nowadays, you see that it's basically cooperating with this Abraham Accords axis. Uh, how much this cooperation can be strategic against Iran, I would be careful in, in this assessment. Uh, Iran and Turkey are very proud that they have more than 400 years of, of quiet border between them. They know how to play uh, their differences, and there are quite a lot of differences between Turkey and Iran. If it's in the Caucasus, if this is in northern Iraq, if in northern Syria, they have a lot of areas where they have, uh, they're not in harmony. But... Um, Say, having said that, that doesn't mean that Israel and Turkey, of course, see Iran in the same way. Israel sees, of course, Iran as an existential threat, and that's very different from how the Turks see that. In his statement announcement about the normalization of relations with Turkey, uh, Prime Minister Lapid mentioned that renewing ties is, quote, very important economic news for the citizens of Israel. You said that it's an important trade partner, but how important is it and how advantageous will it be to Lapid to have done this? So when we're talking about Turkey and Israel uh, 2021, we're talking about more than $7 billion uh, mutual trade. That is that is large, especially from Israeli's perspective. So there's a question how much you can expand this trade beyond what it is already existing. Um, I would say that uh, we have between Israel and Turkey a free trade agreement that entered uh, in 1997. Uh, this was the basis of these very good uh, trade relations between uh, Israel and Turkey, but th- the agreement is outdated. For example, it doesn't deal with services. Uh, there are issues that are, are not uh, well uh, defined in this agreement, and, you know, more than 20 years have passed. So uh, def- Israel and Turkey are going to discuss in September how to update this agreement, and that will, I think, open up more uh, possibilities for Israeli high-tech companies, um, maybe for Israel uh, advanced agricultural uh, solutions beyond just, you know, uh, watering, but, you know, how to water management in in a large scale. So that can be an interesting possibility. A very important confidence-building measure between Israel and Turkey in current times was the aviation agreement. Uh, basically, we had a dispute already from 2007 about the security uh, arrangements for Israeli carriers that are operating from Turkey. Uh, since 2007, these carriers have not operated in Turkey, and only now this issue has been resolved, and we, see, we will see a resumption of Israeli flights of Is- Israeli carriers flying out of Turkey. And again, this is not major in terms of economics, but it was a confidence-building measure. Israelis love Turkey. I mean... 
when relations are good between the two countries, it is by far the favorite travel destination for Israelis. And even when relations between the two countries are not at their best, Israelis want to go there. During the low points in the relationship, Israelis are always nostalgic about the years that they went on vacation to Antalya, etc. And recently, Israel had trouble keeping Israeli tourists out of Istanbul, even when there was a direct threat to them against their lives. Is there potential this time around of trying to deepen the people-to-people relationship kind of beyond the the practical shared interests? Or is this always going to be kind of a one-sided love affair with Israelis having an affinity for Turkey, but the Turkish, is, Turkish people not being so interested in, uh, in Israelis? I, I think the interest is mutual. Uh, you, saw, you saw this in many uh, cultural events that were in both countries, that uh, there is a, a, a willingness and an interest in hearing the other side. Just, you know, there's now this Netflix series, The Club, and it's a big hit in, in Turkey, and it really shows, I mean, this is not less about Israel, but about the Jews in Turkey, but still it does uh, show you that there is interest there. In terms of traveling, of course, it was always much easier for the Israeli tourists to go to Turkey than vice versa. And it's still the case because it's very, uh, especially with what we talked about, the depreciation of the Turkish lira, it would be a very expensive for a Turkish citizen to come uh, to Israel. But the, but, but the interest is there. I think with this new uh, this aviation agreement, there are going to be new travel routes. So that might, again, open new avenues uh, for new new interest and new corporations. So this normalization uh, has potential for deepening and perhaps being a long-term one that could even continue with Erdogan and beyond. If it holds. <laughs> if it holds. I mean, uh, uh, but even if, again, if it doesn't hold, it doesn't mean that the Israeli public is not interested in the Turkish public and vice versa. The emotions are very high. I mean, the Israelis have a problem with Erdogan and, of course, uh, the Turkish public had a problem previously with Netanyahu, but uh, in general, uh, they have an issue with uh, Israelis' leaders and how they act in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, context. Um, but uh, we'll see. I'll mark you down as cautiously optimistic. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Galia Linden-Strauss, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Next up, we'll talk about spyware, fake news, and cyber secrets. excited to welcome Avi Sharf and Omer Ben Jacob, who are representing an amazing new effort here at Haaretz, an editorial department focused on security, cyber, and aviation. Omer is our longtime ace technology correspondent. Hello, hello. Avi is the former fearless leader, uh, editor-in-chief of the Haaretz English edition, but he's been called over to this new mission. We jokingly refer to it behind the scenes here at Haaretz as the Secret Service, and you guys do look a lot like James Bond to me. Alan, thanks for having us. Yeah. So in the spirit of the Secret Service, what is your new mission? We've started up a new desk focusing on, like you said, security, national security exposés, mainly in three realms the first is um israeli cyber weapons exports and israeli disinformation campaigns or yeah. ca disinformation campaigns where israel is involved in um and omar will expand on that later another 
Israel is a, is, is, is a world leader in, in arms exports, so we're going to cover that extensively in Israeli arms exports and tech exports. And the third realm is what's known as OSINT. OSINT is open source intelligence, which means we plan to dig as much as possible into publicly available information and uh, to highlight stories that are sometimes hiding in plain sight. And um, we'll pick them up. I think what's what's kind of changed or what's what's happening now at Alex and I think this is a, a good thing good process is that when the internet kind of started happening and, and just a little history lesson Alex was really at the cutting edge of covering internet stuff way back and we have a very famous vertical in Israel called captain internet and I think a lot of the digital coverage and the coverage of the digital space was done on this kind of assumption that that d- there's a thing called internet culture and I think the internet culture w- happened it was a thing in the 90s but we're kind of 20 20 years down the road and I think Are, are the way we think about technology the way we think about the internet has shifted um, it's no longer a cultural phenomenon it's actually as I said it's like it's it's an actual realm in which defense national security politics uh, everything is currently happening it sounds almost obtuse or stupid to say it that way but it's true like everything is online today and I think that the the the, the open source our open source desk and a lot of the coverage we want to do is is kind of just an attempt to, to, to look at the digital world from a contemporary perspective and be like okay so this is the internet and this is how we need to cover it and as I've as said that that actually touches to tons of stuff so that's gonna be everything from open source plain watching to tracking disinformation through in our inauthentic in campaigns to to, to to even just doing actual paperwork like legal paperwork and revealing arms exports and revealing arms just exports. like exactly. we did last week exactly exactly or cyber arms exports so let's dive right into some of your more recent stories Omar you might have heard we have elections coming up in Israel <laughs> yes very For a change? Yeah. How many signs do we have right now of cyber interference into the Israeli elections this time around? And how does that compare to our last four go-rounds? So that's a, that's a great question and a great kind of example of what we were talking about in terms of how to rethink uh, politics online today. So I think uh, we've always had threats on elections. I think we've just become more aware of them in the digital age. And I think that they're easier to track in the digital age because Twitter and Facebook do, even though they're limited, do leave some paper trail. And just as a kind of small example of that, the, one of the stories we've already done, again, based purely on open source information, stuff you can find and scrape from Twitter uh, with the help of uh, Fake Reporter, which is a non-profit watchdog that follows disinformation in the Israeli online space. Uh, we've discovered that, for example, the Likud, um, it, or it, as part of the primaries, was operating some, or some macher within the Likud was operating some networks of, networks of bots. And I think just as an example, regardless of if this network was actually that efficient, the fact that we now have space to kind of out this network, flag it so early on in the election, now makes this network, in a sense, redundant, or at least undermines its power. And I think a lot of what I hope to be doing on the desk is is kind of flag doing this kind of coverage that actually undermines a lot of these processes because people don't know that stuff is happening uh, and the moment they know they're much more knowledgeable <laughs> citizens and, and this stuff has less uh, less evil powers I'll put it that way uh, something that we're going to try to expose even more is uh, uh, disinformation campaigns that could obviously sway elections here or anywhere else in the Middle East like one of the first stories we covered, was a very complicated disinformation campaign. Someone, we don't know the identity, 
behind it, but someone put an, an entire website under alufben.com. Alufben is Haaretz editor-in-chief. Two fake websites. There was Two also, fake websites. Yeah. Uh, the other one was on our uh, senior, uh, yeah, uh, for the, our security analyst. But anyways, someone bought alufben.com, which is alufben is our editor-in-chief, and, and they took the time to put up a very nice, clean website with a, a biography uh, for Aluf, an entire archive of 200 real columns that he has published in Haaretz. We weren't even sure it was fake the first time we, we saw it. We weren't sure. Yeah. We went over all 200 columns to check. They were all original stories that he had put up. But in between those 200 stories, uh, they spread out three fake stories of alleged interviews Aluf ran with a top diplomat in, in, in which the top diplomat reveals that Turkey and Erdogan are actually puppets of Israel. Another and one, there was a deal between Israel and Yemen, right? And there was a secret deal between Israel and the new uh, head of the presidential council in Yemen, um, and another story um, said that Israel... Uh, ah, Israel was working with... Uh, with the UAE to, uh, to infiltrate into Afghanistan. And ah, all, yeah. all, these stories, <laughs> all these stories are fake, but it, it, the purpose is to spread one story out there on the, on the web and then say, oh, Haaretz, Israeli newspaper published it, and whoever uh, will look into it will see that it's on alufben.com, and he'll say, okay, that's Aluf's website. He's like a serious journalist. And then fake news would spread all over the Middle East on, on, on Irani Twitter. Someone out there um, wanted to trash um, these allies of Israel, whether it's the Saudis or the Turks or, uh, or the UAE, um, and, and they want to trash them by spreading fake news about how Israel controls them. They're actually puppets you of You can Israel. see how invested they are in doing this. Like it's, it's this very serious operation. It's not like the cheap Likud bots. This is like a, a, a six, seven, eight-month operation where you do research and you plan and you publish this out. Exposed. And expo- yeah, and, it's, and we've now completely outed this thing. There's no new post uh, since we last published on this. And again, it just shows, and we didn't even, like, in a sense, this, this can be perceived as an actual national security threat, like someone is spreading real misinformation about Israel and its diplomatic ties. And, 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 and though I believe sources are important and you also need human sources, is a, a lot of this story was done just by looking online, using open tools like the Wayback Machine, and of course also working with sources. Yeah, that's also a very important aspect of it. But 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 the core, the, a lot of the material and the initial leads are actually open. So do we have a prime suspect, judging from the content no. or any technological clues? No, we don't no, that's know. That's why if he's it my boss because I was about to answer. <laughs> <laughs> we do not, not yet. But we'll let's see. say it's someone who thinks <laughs> someone is threatening Iran and Iranian hegemony in the region. And someone also really likes Hezbollah, let's say, <laughs> whoever that may be. So, Avi, I've had you on the podcast before to discuss that, but kind of a corner of uh, journalism that you're helping to pioneer is using flight data to uncover otherwise hidden stories. Mm. Tell us about what you recently found in your plane watching about what might be going on between Iran and Russia with implications for the war in Ukraine. Like you said, I've been following planes since forever, uh, but I'm not the only one. Lots of aviation geeks is that uh, how you're identified? Av geeks? Is this a term? Oh, yeah, it's a term out there. Uh, <laughs> Av geeks. It's a scene. Aviation, it's a community. Aviation researchers. Um, <laughs> on Twitter mainly. And what one of them, uh, a Dutch aviation tracker, has found out, um, he's compiled a list of all the flights going from Tehran to Moscow since the Ukraine war began. And what he's found out, that there have been dozens of flights since, uh, since March. 
that these flights are linked to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And it's a surge in flights because last year there were only three flights. And this year in like five months, there have been 45 wow. flights already. Now, what's on those flights, we don't really know. But this comes with a flurry of reports of uh, Iranians helping the Russians um, who are set back in Ukraine. They're, they're really faltering in Ukraine, specifically in the drone field. Um, National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan uh, claimed that uh, Iran is about to supply attack drones to Russia uh, to help them out in Ukraine. We don't know if that delivery has started, whether those flights are connected, but that, that comes amid that development. We do know that there is a serious uh, spike in uh, security coordination between Iran and Russia. The drone deal is part of it. The flights are part of that cooperation. So that's one thing that pops up. You just have to look at the data. And it's again, it's, it's, it's publicly available data. Uh, but you have to look at it. You have to decipher it. You have to give context to it. And we've published that based on that Dutch researcher. We've also gone on, this is a story that I did with Liaron, who's our um, environmental correspondent at Haaretz. We dug up an entire year's worth of private jet flights for seven of Israel's richest people. And then we sent all the data to the scientists and they crunched the numbers and what they found was inconceivable. One year's worth of flights for these seven Israelis polluted um, the environment roughly at what an average Israeli would do in 3,000 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, um, so great story. So that's just another example of what we do with publicly available information. Um, and I love that story. I just have to say one thing. I love that story because it shows how this information does not only touch on, on national security, but but kind of cuts through all burning issues at a very, very broad level, including Glo global, global yeah. security, environmental change. Yeah. So another important story that, Omer, you've been working on for yes. how many years? Um, <laughs> the big story of uh, Israeli spyware being sold internationally. Yep. Uh, the story is mostly focused on the company uh, NSO. Can you give us an update on the spread of its global use and the backlash of uh, of that use? It's not just for dictators anymore, is it? Exactly. Well, at least the dictators can't hold up the entire business model we're discovering because yesterday we had we heard news that NSO is firing 100 people uh, and uh, Shalev Julio, its uh, famous CEO, is stepping down uh, to focus on selling the company. The reason he's selling the company and the reason they're letting people off is because it's been a terrible, horrible, dirty year for Israeli cyber uh, since the Forbidden Stories uh, network of which Haaretz and the Demarker are also partners uh, published their stories. NSO has had a terrible year. Uh, they were blacklisted by the U.S. along with Candiro, another cyber firm. And all of this stuff uh, actually made Israel turn its back on its cyber industry in a sense, or at least this is what people in the cyber industry are saying. Uh, and now you can't sell to dictators anymore. Generally, you can't sell to anyone who's not a really legit Western country and there's somewhere between 34 to 37 countries which are okay to sell to. And you've, and, and you've revealed 22 governmental clients and 12 EU states. Exactly. So we NSO revealed clients. two weeks ago, there, a week and a half ago, that all, like that, literally half of the EU was NSO's clients. And I think what, what, what is important to understand about that is that that's not enough to maintain an industry. So once you do business with Spain and once you do business with Germany and once you do business with the Netherlands, th there's not necessarily other contracts to be had within that space. And therefore, we're already seeing smaller firms shutting down. Uh, the previous list was like 70, yeah? And it included all those countries you, you, your American passport can't get you to. So it's... it's it's this new kind of 
very limited, confined list, is putting this entire industry in a problem. Why is this a problem? Not just because NSO is shutting down and we, in theory, maybe could be sad about that. Because some Israelis are going rogue and we are seeing kind of the appearance of other firms with Israeli links in other places. Specifically, I'm talking about uh, Greece right now, but, but I have a feeling we're going to be seeing more and more of this because I think the Israelis involved in this space and with knowledge and with know-how won't just stop doing business because it's inconvenient for Israel at this point because it's tough politics with the U.S. and they'll probably just be shedding up shop in places like Malta, Singapore, uh, North Macedonia, uh, Virgin British Islands, and so on and so forth. We ran an editorial not long ago saying that basically we need to regulate the sale of spyware in the same way that we regulate the sale of weaponry. But what you're saying now about setting up in new countries kind of uh, makes that a little yes bit... Yes and um, no. I think it's a really interesting debate. I think that uh, uh, I think cyber arms, uh, we tend to pretend or think that it's some new problem we've never come across. It's a complex issue, yes, but we have experience setting up uh, regulations that are binding. This is not the first time someone who's done something problematic in their home country has set up a shell company in another country. So even that in itself is not new. I think in that sense technology would benefit and cyberspace would benefit from us thinking about it not as something new, but as actually a continuation of what we already know. Avi Omer, continue your mission. <laughs> um, we look forward to uh, to more fascinating stories. It just seems like this is an area that's uh, there's going to be more rather than less. And uh, it's a really vital new part of journalism. And uh, you guys are pioneers in exploring it. And we're having fun. Yes, it's only been a month. And please send us tips, by the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really important. And look for us <laughs> online on how it's in English and oh, Hebrew. True, true, true. And thanks for having us. And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks so much to my guests, Dr. Galia Lindenstrauss, Avi Scharf, and Omer Ben-Jacob, and to my producer, Shani Aviram. For the latest news and analysis of Israel's fifth elections, don't miss Election Overdose, dropping on Friday, and we'll be back with Haaretz Weekly next week. Until then, I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>